All right, thank, thanks, Tom. Uh, Mike has another question, but we will come back to him. For now, we're going to shoot back up to the northeast, Boston area, I believe, Sveta. I imagine it is really cold up there. Okay, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, it's quite cold, uh, but it's okay. Um, it's not too bad. Um, I have a question. I have two questions. Um, first one, I tried to form as well as I could, but I'm not sure if I understand it. And if not, then I'll try to put it in other words. I'll just read it. Um, if this is a game to evoke our consciousness, why are we given this information to know that we are players? Doesn't it spoil the game's purpose? Shouldn't, shouldn't we be unaware for better lessons in it contradictory to the game? Does it make sense? Um, you're saying if this is a game, then part of the, part of the, um, kind of rules in a virtual reality ought to be that the players don't know they're in a virtual reality. Yeah. Because if, yep. if you know you're in a virtual reality, then um, um, particularly okay. if you if you have ego, that makes you, uh, you know, think of your experience differently. It's not as real. Again, back to this, this definition of what's real and what's not. You see, we have this idea that they're the real things and that's good and we should spend our time on those. And then there's the things that aren't real and those are the things that waste our time and we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't uh, spend time on those. But life isn't like that. Those those things that are useful and things that aren't is a much better way to separate uh, what you should spend your time on, not some idea of what's real. But yes, that is true. You want your virtual reality to be hidden for the most part that it's virtual. So otherwise... Players, uh, particularly players with ego, would tend to get uh, modify their their uh, choices because now, well, it's a virtual reality. It's okay if my children drown in the swimming pool because it's not; it's just a virtual reality, and that's that. Then undermines them taking their choices very seriously. So. The integrity of the virtual reality does depend somewhat on it being not noticed. And for the most part, that happens here. But this is a virtual reality for consciousness. We are consciousness. And as consciousness, we do live outside this virtual reality. Uh, you know, whether we want to or not, we function outside of this virtual reality. It's part of our experience. Everybody connects with other people, communicates telepathically with other people. It just happens. You can be sensitive to other people's feelings. Some people turn it off, and they have no idea what anybody's feeling. Uh, most of us tend to tune in on those things. It makes us more aware of our environment if we uh, don't turn it off. So we are aware of these things. It's Most people realize that being happy and being positive creates a better life than being negative. So you just, you have dreams, you know there's a dream reality, which is different than this reality. So we have experiences in this larger consciousness system all the time. Because we're consciousness, we're part of that system, and growing up to realize that we are consciousness is part of the way we evolve the quality of our consciousness. As we grow up, we feel more connected to the whole. We feel a part of a bigger thing. 
And, well, what is this bigger thing? You see? Well, it's not just in his virtual reality. This, this is a bigger thing that's bigger than just the physical universe that we're in. This bigger thing we're a part of. It's a connectedness. It's an interaction. It's a belonging that uh, isn't just physical. So now we have spiritual components as well as physical components to our reality. And all of these spiritual components, as we grow up, are developing our sense of something beyond this reality. Now, we may not get to the terminology of calling it a virtual reality, but that's still the same idea. We see another reality that's important to us called a spiritual space, and that's not physical. So we're already, just by growing up, we're getting into this, we're getting into the idea that uh, we're getting outside of this reality and things outside this reality are important. So then when you just give it a name and say, oh, it's a virtual reality and we are consciousness, now we're just naming the things that we already know. And that's not going to to, uh, hurt anybody. So we do automatically see behind the veil, see that this is a virtual reality, that there is something larger just in our growing up because we're a part of that system. We're multidimensional. We experience in these other realities all the time, whether we process it and know it or not. So we're being prepared for for another probably level of consciousness. Yes, it's part of our preparation. So as we grow up, we see and live in a bigger and bigger reality. When we're not very grown up, when we're very fearful, we live in a little reality. It's very small. There's nothing in it mostly except ourselves and the people we, and things we interact with. That's all that's in our reality. Just us, the others we react, interact with, and the stuff we interact with. For a three-year-old, that's his parents, his siblings, the next-door neighbors, you know, the kids at daycare, and maybe the town that he lives in, and that's it. His reality isn't any bigger than that. That's the totality of his universe. And as he gets bigger, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then as he gets older and more mature and starts developing the spiritual side, that that expansion becomes non-physical. And that non-physical expansion just keeps growing as we grow up. So it's part of what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to eventually look behind the curtain and see that there's something else back there that's significant, part of our growing. So it's only hidden from those who aren't ready to see it yet. Uh-huh. And it's totally open to those who are ready to see it yet and making that transfer from one to the other is really what growing up is is all about okay thank you it was very packed i will have to listen to what you said i was losing parts periodically but thank you very much that's why we record it (laughs) yeah you know, Tom, it popped up in the comments. I don't know if you saw that, but um, someone just mentioned that uh, it is just like uh, Westworld. If anyone's seen that, uh, recommend you watching Westworld. It's it's intriguing, it's fascinating, and uh, it's a cool show to watch. Have you seen any of it, Tom, yet? No, I don't know what it is. Okay. Uh, TJ or Oliver, do you want to explain Westworld? Yeah, I guess it's kind of a... Um, it's almost like these people had created a whole virtual reality um, that's made up of robots that people could take a vacation into and just behave any way they want because they know it's all set up for them. And it kind of gets out of hand. But then towards the end of the show, 
um, uh, they start yeah. to uh, to realize what's going on and how they've been kind of manipulated and they're, they're not too happy about it. <laughs> right. Well, the thing is, what they needed to realize is what's important is the choices you make. And it doesn't matter where you make those choices. If you make those choices in a dream, if you make those choices in an out-of-body, you make those choices here, you know, you make those choices, uh, you know, in some other, some other city, in some other country where nobody knows you, you make the choice. And by the choices that you make with your free will, you evolve or you de-evolve. Where you make them and the context in which you make them is totally irrelevant. And what's important to your life and growing up is those choices. So that's what they didn't realize. They thought, oh, if I go into a virtual reality, then my choices don't count. But they do count. <laughs> Every choice you make, you grow up or you grow down. You evolve or you de-evolve based on those choices. The context of the choice and the location of the choice is irrelevant. You have free will. You get to make choices. And uh, there is no reality that is not important because every reality that's a reality that you can interact in is important because you make choices there. So I can see that uh, the lack of understanding of the nature of reality and what's important and what's not would kind of wander off on a, on a, a show like that where you explore these ideas. And of course they are exploring them again. They're metaphors for our experience. What people have found and what their experience is, is that it is the choice that matters, not the context of the choice. It's the choice that matters. So I suspect this this thing, as you as you described it, starts out with people making very bad choices. You know, it's like children that where the parents have left the house, right? The parents say, "Well, we're going to go out for a few hours, kids. Be good," you know, or uh, the parents leave for the weekend and tell their teenagers, "Now don't have any friends over and throw a party." And then now that the parents aren't there, well, now they can make a whole set of different choices, you see. And it's that kind of an idea. Well, people of all ages have experienced that. Your, you know, your five-year-old experiences that when mom and dad aren't in the room, they get to do things differently than they would if they were in the room. So people watch that movie and they, they can connect to that as a metaphor for their own learning that, yes, choices do matter. And you do pay the price for that choice because mom and dad do eventually come home and, uh, you know, things do uh, always work themselves out into the, into the uh, knowledge base. You very seldom get away with anything. And even when nobody else knows, you know, and you still haven't gotten away with it. You still have to deal with yourself. So it's a good metaphor for where we are and what we're doing and how we grow and uh, I suspect that as it goes on, people will learn that, that the choices they make are important no matter where they make them. They have consequences, consequences to their own, to their own growth. It's very interesting, Tom, that uh, in, in current culture, a lot of TV shows, a lot of films are touching on these, uh, these kind of topics and subjects. Another great one that I recommend people watch is definitely Stranger Things, which is streaming. Uh, it's a Netflix original here in the US. Uh, people should check that one out as well. Uh, Mike, you'll have to find the time to watch these. when uh, I know you're a busy man, but uh, I'm hoping you've got time for your, your second question, mate. <laughs> All right, buddy. Thank you, Keith. Uh, Tom, as we get better at meditation and holding point consciousness, will this help us once our time comes to leave PMR and transition back into our individuated unit of consciousness? 
Um, I suppose what I'm asking is, would it be correct to say that um, this practice of meditation and holding point consciousness will help us at the time of our death navigate through that transition period and then help us uh, come back, maybe um, being clearer during that period so when we come back um, we can position ourselves for for a better next experience? Absolutely. It'll help a lot. Uh, A good analogy would be if you've never flown in an airplane before and never been in an airport and you walk into an airport, well, there's signs telling you where to go, you know, which way is the gate and uh, that sort of thing. But if you've never been there before, you're not even sure what a gate is. You know, a gate is something that, uh, you know, separates your house from your garden. You don't necessarily see that as a place where airplanes park. So everything's unfamiliar with you, and you really don't know how to interpret the signs that you see, and you wander around. You probably will miss your flight because you don't know where you're going, how to get there. You don't know to look at those little, at those little video monitors, and you don't know what all that stuff means. You can't understand what the symbols and the abbreviations. So see, it's very difficult because you just don't know what's going on. Well, if you don't know what's going on, it's really hard to be efficient <laughs> at playing that game, you know, at uh, interacting in those circumstances. And it's exactly the same when you die and make a transition. If you know what's going on and you understand it, that transition is much more efficient and it will work for you better. You'll end up with a better choice going into the next one. You'll end up learning a whole lot more from what you've just finished up doing. You'll be able to see the bigger picture You'll be able to look back over a dozen lifetimes and see trends and patterns and things that uh, you didn't know you had to work on, but they're obviously there. So all of that then will become available to you just because you're aware of the game, know the signs, and know what you're doing and why you're doing it. And yes, it'll make a big difference in the effectiveness that you will have in evolving. You become a lot more efficient at it. You know, it's that's the way everything works. You know, the more you know, the easier it is to know more. You know, when you don't know anything, it's really hard to learn something because you don't know the language, you don't know the, the symbols, you don't know the metaphors, and it's very difficult to learn anything. But as you learn, it gets easier and easier and easier to take in more, more things. So that's goes exactly the same way the more evolved you become the easier it is to evolve more that works the same way as well thanks tom sveda back to you i think you have another question for tom um i suddenly have one more question probably more important than the other um um the question uh, it's more like a, a comment uh, maybe uh, expecting your commentary uh, the thing is I've noticed that I like to be in that world a lot more than in this one I feel almost like I live there and that I come here only as because it's a duty you know it's lessons uh, I understand this, and I. Uh, it's not like I abandoned this world. No, it's just a feeling. But there, it's always it's always good. Very rarely I get something negative there. 
Um, so it's just, I don't know if it's a question or a comment or. <laughs> yes, well, it's, it's, it's a good, uh, it's a good question comment because a lot of people have that experience. Um, it, the reason you have that is that when you're in that altered state, when you're in that meditation state and you're in point consciousness, you have let all of the fears, all of the issues, really the responsibilities, you know, all of those things that you just have to do, all the have to do's are gone. Now it's just all the want to do's and the learning and the growing and you're just kind of open to new things. And that's what you're doing. And who wouldn't rather be in a state where you're just open and new things are, are happening? And Can I, interrupt, uh, and, can I interrupt you? It's sure, important. Please, it's important. Um, uh, it's not that. Uh, I do a lot of work there. Like, for example, if something needs to be done with my relationship with my daughter, for example, I'm doing a lot of work uh, on that matter. Right. Okay. Uh, um, healing, you know, like there are a lot of things to do that um, evolve effort. It's not like I'm in nirvana always, you know. Okay. But well, it that's... still feels better there. Even so, I'm working there too. <laughs> yeah, that that world when you're working there is is less complicated than it is when you're here. When you're here. You have all of these relationships and connections with people that are not so much done in a mental space as they're done in this feeling connected space because that other person has feelings and things and then they affect you. When you're there, you're not affected by all this stuff that kind of reaches out and touches you and interacts with you and pulls you this way and pulls you that way. You kind of are outside of all of that. And then when you come back here, it's kind of a sticky world. It's a world where where things are pulling at you. Things are demanded of you, and, and it's not necessarily things you want to do, but it's things you have to do, uh, connections that you, you need to make. And I think that's the difference. But part of it is that you need to see this world and all of its stickiness as a challenge, as the main challenge you're here to deal with. Your main thing here is to grow up, not to heal people, you know, with your mind. Your main thing here is to evolve your quality. And to do that, you have to interact with all of this other sticky stuff that is not necessarily what you'd like it to be, but it's just there and you can't get away from it. You have to deal with that and make choices about it and deal with it successfully. Deal with it in a way that it isn't negative and it doesn't pull at you but deal with it in a way that's positive what's you know convert that negative feeling to positive feelings convert that oh man what a drag back here in this physical world to the oh man it's really great here it's really nice it's a wonderful place to be i'm learning i'm growing i have all these neat connections so it's just a matter of seeing it from a different perspective and that's really the reason you're here that's the important thing for you to do now, in the process of your growing up, you are able to do things like heal with your mind, to counsel people, uh, you know, from a telepathic perspective rather than face-to-face because that telepathic connection is so much cleaner than all that mm-hmm. sticky stuff when you have to do it in person, you see. 
and it's and it's effective. So you you know how to do those things, and doing them is fine. It's good practice. It helps you uh, learn to quiet your mind. So it's a good thing to do, but don't get unbalanced. It's easy to get unbalanced because that other world is an easier, gentler, less sticky, less annoying place. And this physical world reaches out and slaps you all the time. It grabs at you. It scratches at you. It paws at you. It needs you. It wants you to do this and that. It's trying to manipulate you. And uh, you need to learn to deal with all of that and deal with it positively and with caring and with, you know, with love and that sort of thing. And that's really what you're trying to learn. So it's a bad idea to want to avoid it because that's really what you're here for. So rather than looking at the contrast, well, this is sure nice. And well, this is sure not so nice. It's oh. well, this is, this is nice, but it's part of my learning and it's not no nice stuff. That's the core of my learning. That's where I really am going to learn things. So right. making, making that rest of your life to be very positive is important. Probably more important than exploring in the, in the non-physical and using that. But the best way to grow up is to do both and to keep both in perspective. If you just do one or just do the other, it's not very effective for you. You have to do both. And the ratio of that both has to just be something you come to. But always think of balance and where can I learn the most important lessons? Well, typically the most important lesson you have is the one that causes you the most pain. Mm -hmm. That's typically the way it is. If you've got something that really causes you more pain than anything else, that's probably where you most, you know, more than anything else need to grow, need to learn how to deal with that positively, how to let that go or how to, how to, you know, feed it with love or convert it or whatever, or even walk away from it, you know, whatever it is you have to do to deal with it in the positive uh, way. Sometimes walking away from it is, is a better thing. And sometimes that's just not a possibility. Well, it's always a possibility, but it's not practical. You can't walk away from it, particularly if it's family particularly if it's relationship things that are there. So in any case, yeah, I know that's not a happy answer, but that's really the answer is you need to, you know, you need that stuff, that sticky, gooey stuff that is really not all that nice. You have to deal with that and deal with it positively. And that is a bigger challenge right now for you than the other the other stuff, the stuff in the non-physical is less of a, is less of a challenge and probably more rewarding in some ways than dealing here, more efficient some ways than dealing here, but you have to deal here too. And here is primary. Probably my biggest fear is to ever lose it. This connection that I found with that world. Yeah, no, you're not going to lose it. It's, uh, it's yours. You've gained it by your, you've gained it through your awareness. The only thing that will make it go away is your own fear. If you have fear that, oh, I might lose it. Uh, oh, maybe today it wasn't so good. Maybe I'm losing it. You see now that fear will help, you know, will get between you and it. But if uh -huh. you don't let that happen and, uh, it'll not go away. It's a part of you. It's part of who you are. Good. Good. <laughs> That's good.
You know, another thing, it's normal for people to run through times where they spend a whole lot of time in the non-physical and dealing in that realm and other times when they spend almost none and they worry about it. Sometimes they'll say, Oh, it's been you know six weeks and I haven't meditated. I haven't done anything. I haven't done the healing. Um, I just, it just doesn't, you know, I, I seem to have other things to do. I put that off and uh, what's the matter. And then they feel like maybe they're neglecting it or there's a problem, but there's probably not a problem. It's just like that. We run through cycles. Sometimes we spend a lot of time interacting non-physically, and then we need to actually take that in. We need to to uh, digest all of that. We need to implement it. We need to employ it. We need to use it in real life. We need to be and connect. So we'll do that for a while, and then we may come back. So it's not like a constantly you'll have a – you know, a, a 20-80 ratio or a 50-50 ratio or whatever it is, that'll change. Sometimes you'll go for months at a time without oh. ever going into the non-physical. And sometimes you'll spend more time in the physical in a day, <laughs> in the non-physical in a day than you do the physical because it just seems like that's what you need now. So don't worry about the ratio too much other than to keep your eyeball on what's important and that's your, your growth. Thank you very much. Okay, Svetlana, I know you. Do you have another question? Can we ask? Come back to that in a little while. Or would you like to ask it now? Uh, whatever is better for the group. Go for it. Go for it while you're here, and we've okay. got a good sound. Okay. Uh, it was partially answered uh, uh, by you to TJ's question. So um, if you don't have anything to add, then it's just okay. Let's get anyway because it's a different angle. Okay. In one of your videos on meditation, you say that going into the other realities can be dangerous for uh, an unprepared, that we need a structure. For example, it helps tremendously to know that fear manifests itself there ahead of time before you start all these ex- uh, explorations. Mm-hmm. Every time I experience fear, all I have to do is to remember this, this rule, and it's gone. Um, so I can imagine how much trouble it causes to those who don't know this. So I was hoping you might have more useful steps for meditations, uh, more useful steps like this or rules like this. Okay, I have a few. Um, yeah, I, you, you kind of quote me saying that uh, you know, going to other realities can be dangerous for an unprepared. That danger, and I, I'd like to address that because that frightens people. And of course, fear is part of the problem. So that's counterproductive for them. So I like to mention that first. And that is that what's dangerous is only dangerous because you have the fear. If you don't have the fear, then there's very little that will bother you or that's dangerous. But what's dangerous, if you go into the larger conscious system and something frightens you, that fear can begin to grow. You know, fear grows on itself. And you can have a small fear that gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and pretty soon you're having nightmares, and then you're having, uh, you know, ghostly figures, uh, you know, appear in your bedroom. And 
pretty soon your life is not so good anymore because of all this fear that's that's building up. So that is the danger. The danger is that the fear can begin to grow in you and create problems. Often when we get data and we don't know how to interpret, and when you go into the non-physical realities, you'll get a lot of data and you won't know how to interpret it because it's not at all like the data you get in a physical reality. So it's hard for us to interpret it. And if we're fearful, we tend to interpret it in terms of fearful things. Uncertainty is turned into menace because we're fearful. So that's the kind of preparation that we need. We need the preparation to be not fearful, to be strong, to be to know that you know we are and that as consciousness we can travel here and we can explore here and this is our natural habitat. And to have that attitude rather than, oh, I'm invading a, a land and a place and a reality that I don't know anything about. What if there's something bad there that's going to bite me? You see, if you enter with fear, you'll find scary things. So that's why it's dangerous if you're unprepared, because you might get balled up in your own in your own fear. Okay, so what about things? What about structures and things that you could uh, learn that might be important for you? One, the most important one is the one you mentioned, and that is the scary things you see are just your own fear being manifested in a metaphor that suits you. And that's a metaphor that scares you. It's a metaphor that uh, unsettles you. The, another thing is that's very important is interact with what you come in contact with. Reach out for it, go into it, connect with it. And it doesn't matter how banal or how goofy it might look or how scary even, connect with it. See, if it's uh, whatever, just connect with it and, and uh, see where it takes you. Don't be afraid to connect. You can always disconnect if you want to, but explore everything. There's nothing too trivial, nothing too silly, or nothing too big or monstrous that you can't connect with it. Find out what it's about and what is there there for you to learn. Be open to everything. So that's that's a big thing. And, of course, the last thing that uh, you hear me talk about a lot is this open-minded skepticism. Be open-minded about everything. That means that you're willing to accept all the data in until you've had a chance to, you know, to look at the data and um, deal with it. But be skeptical about everything. If you run into an entity that says, you know, oh, what you need to do is this and that, and here's your problem, take that with a grain of salt. Be skeptical of everything. Even if that entity comes to you as your favorite, uh, you know, deceased relative or, uh, you know, a religious character or anything else, just take it with a grain of salt and look at it and say, what can I learn from this? Where is this leading me? And is it a good space? And realize that you have to take responsibility for all your choices. Some entity says, what you need to do is go out and do this. It's your responsibility to take 
you know, for that choice. It's not that, oh, well, no, it's not me. It's, you know, the entity told me to do it. Well, that doesn't work. You know, the, the devil told me to do it is never a good excuse. You have to always take responsibility for your choices and for knowing whether these are good choices or bad choices. Just because somebody tells you, oh, this is a good choice, doesn't mean it's a good choice or that that's a bad choice. Doesn't mean it. So you take in all the information, you sort it, you assess it, you process it, and then you make the decision what you want to do with it. And that's important. You can't give your free will up to anything else to tell you what to do. You need to always be in charge of making your own decisions. So that's just open-minded skepticism. You are open-minded to everything. Nothing's too silly. Nothing's beneath you. Nothing's above you. You're open to everything. And there's nothing that you will believe or take, you know, take at face value. You're skeptical of everything, including yourself. Probably mostly yourself. You have to be very skeptical about your own beliefs and your own uh, attitudes and uh, your own justifications for things. Always be skeptical of everything. So if you are that, if you are fearless, if you are skeptical of everything and open to everything, and if you interact, you're not a voyeur in this in this uh, larger consciousness system. You don't go there to, to look like you watch, go to sit down and watch TV. You don't go there to watch. You go there to interact. And many people make that mistake. They have the idea that, oh, I'm going to another reality. They're going to, it's like turning on a TV to a different channel. They're going to watch and see what happens. Well, if what you're going to do is watch, almost nothing happens. This is an interactive thing in these these uh, non-physical realities. You go there and you interact with whatever, even if that thing that you see is just a rock sitting on the ground. Go interact with that rock. Go into the rock. Be the rock. Experience the rock. Uh, ask the question: Why this rock? Where does it lead? You know, what's next after the rock? You know, engage it in some way. Don't just say, oh, look, a rock. Hmm, how boring. If you do that, nothing ever happens because you're not ever grabbing hold of anything to happen. So those are the, those are the ideas. Those are, I guess, the few basic concepts or structure for when you're exploring the larger consciousness system. If you do those, all the rest of it will tend to make sense to you more. Okay. I forgot what I wanted to ask. <laughs> I had one more question. I mean, uh, same thing, but I forgot. <laughs> we'll come back to it, Sredo. I'm sure you'll yeah. I'm sure it'll come to you. Just uh, type it, type it in. Let me know when you're ready. Okay. Um, thank you. I okay. do that all the time, Sveta. <laughs> yeah, about the. Uh, I understand well, I re- perfectly. I remember uh, my visions are you saying like it's just a rock. With me, it's more like they're of such a magnitude that I never. I don't know what to do with them. I'm just like looking at that and it's just like something that that I don't have words. There are no words. It's just something. Uh, It's just experience. I feel it. I see it. uh, Not with this eyes. And it just, its purpose seems to me to shock me. It just uh, shows me something and disappears. So I, I have no... Uh, time to interact with it. It just disappears. But, and then something else flashes and it disappears. And, and I see no purpose in this well, show. It's, uh, it's just like a show off. 
Well, you are interacting with it. If it's if the purpose is to shock you, being shocked is a pretty strong interaction. So you do have some kind of interaction that is massive. It's it's either wonderful or it's horrible or it's boring or you do interact with it in some way, and that's good. And you can also interact with it by why are you showing me this? Uh, you know what is where does this lead? What's the you know what's the lesson here? You can start putting those questions out in your mind to see if that doesn't now lead that to someplace else. So that in that way you can you can engage that particular sign. So you can open yourself up to it, which basically says, okay, I'm open. All right. I got this, you know, know, whatever that is, that's nice. You know, where does this take me? What's this on the path to? And if you just get a whole bunch of images, well then be entertained. Somebody's trying to entertain you and see how you get your reactions. And if it scares you or, or you get bored with it, then they'll note that. You know, think of it as maybe, uh, you know, there's a psychiatrist out there giving you a Rorschach test, and he's picking all these, these little cards up for you to look at and tell you how you react to them. You know, what's your immediate reaction to that? And by doing that, they're learning something about uh, your attitudes and how, you're, uh, how you work at the being level. So it could just be that sort of thing, in which case, go ahead and take the test. You know, just look at it and feel open to it and experience it. And then if it goes away and something else comes up, uh, just do that. If it gets to where there's too much of that and you don't want to play that game anymore, then just say no. And when you do that, that'll end. And hopefully there'll be something else then to replace that. But often you can say, why? Why this? What's the meaning in this? And if it just changes, then there's probably no meaning in it. It's probably just like a Rorschach test just to you know, get your reaction to it the big psychiatrist in the sky. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much. I, I'm just taking so much time, I feel bad now, so I'll just watch <laughs> from now on. Sveta, they're always fantastic questions, so um, you take your time, you get them out how you want to get them out, and, and Tom will give you those answers. He always will. Tom, <laughs> Tom, we're going to go back in time for the next couple of questions. The first one is from Brian. Um in my big toe, book one, chapter nine, you mentioned the experiments at the Tuckahoe Motel in the early 1970s, where you had 20 novice newcomers who seemingly had overnight successes without any prior training, whereas it takes most regular people years of practice to be able to do that. Usually, you refer to the quality of consciousness as a crucial factor in being successful at having these experiences. So, I was wondering how all 20 novices could have been so successful there at the Tuckahoe Motel. Uh, because they were set up for success. That's why. Now, these weren't just random people drawn out of a phone book, of course. These were people who were very, very interested in things paranormal and things out of body and had probably been working on it for years and somebody tells them that oh bob monroe you know the guy who wrote the books that they've been reading and and uh, uh trying to duplicate for for years has a new technology that will help you you know jump out of body and you want to come and, and experience this new technology? Well, see, that's kind of what went out. And we had a whole bunch of people grab at that immediately. Yes, I want, you know, I want to experience this new technology. It's going to help me do this. So when the people came, 
it's not like we just randomly selected people off the street and put them in a tuckahoe. These were people who were psyched. They were geared up for having breakthrough experiences, for them just being open. Well, when you have that, you help make that come true. Because now, instead of saying, oh, what was that? Is that real? Am I really doing this? I don't think my state's really good enough. Instead of all that kind of thing that they normally did, wow, they had the new technology from Bob Monroe, and they were out there. They were soaring. They were having all kinds of experiences. So they didn't have those negative responses. You see, they were much more open. So what we did is got them to suspend some of their ego, suspend some of their beliefs, and suspend a lot of their fear, and just open up to the possibilities. They had that in their minds and in their feelings before they ever got to the Tuckahoe Motel. So when they got there, they were ready to go, and Bob Monroe and his new technology was just the, um, you know, just the suggestion they needed to get out of their own way. So that's why we had so much success. It was partly because the new technology actually worked. And there had been no technology up to that point. So they did get a boost as far as their meditation state. Any of them that had trouble really staying focused in that theta state found it so much easier when they were listening to, you know, four hertz, you know, theta, theta wave binaural beats. It helped them get and hold that state rather than get it for two minutes and then lose it and then get it back for 30 seconds and then lose it and then get it back for five minutes and then lose it, which is what most of them were doing before, which is what most people do. Uh, now they got it and were there for the next, you know, hour and a half. Um, that was also a big advantage for them. So that's why it worked that way. Uh, yes, people do not suddenly have great aha moments, but when you're ready for it, and if you can use a placebo effect to uh, get rid of most of your fears, inhibitions, and ego, and just open up to it, things can happen pretty quickly, pretty fantastically. Now, my guess is that uh, a month after they were done with that experience, they were pretty much back to where they were you know, before they had the experience. It probably wasn't something that changed them it was more of a, a peak experience, things that they had seen and accomplished and done that were, you know, more than they imagined that they could ever do. And that was exciting. And it gave them the kind of the gumption and the strength to go on and keep working at it. But eventually all things kind of settle out and you'll look at, you know, you'll look back at it a month or two months or six months later. And most of them were probably pretty much back just about where they were, you know, before they before they came. It all tends to go back to who you really are at the being level. And if that didn't change in that weekend, who you were at the being level, then eventually you'd go right back to the, you know, to the way it was. So it wasn't any magic that we did there. It was a good technology with uh, people who were really uh, uh, psyched for an experience. So they had uh, both the technology and a, and a big dose of placebo effect going for them to help them open up and let go. Thanks, Tom. Um, this next question. Um, now, I swear people submit some of these questions just to see me butcher some of these <laughs> difficult and unusual words. Um, it's from Stellarapus, and uh, they write, Hi, I have a very specific question for Tom, and I would really like to hear an honest answer analysis from him. It is a straight 
straightforward question about the Bob Munro's Louche wrote, Far Journeys, page 162. And here's the question. Who is, sorry, who is harvesting the Louche from us? And what is the purpose of the Louche itself? And is the Terran system an Entelechia one or just another Sisyphean Louche farm? I got it. Okay. Okay. The Louche thing. All right, I'll try. I'll try to give you a, a, an honest answer, not my usual answer. Um, but here goes. You have to look at this as a metaphor. The loose, you know, we work in terms of metaphors when we're out of body. We get information. We structure them in terms of metaphors that make sense to us. That's what we report out. That's what everybody does. We do that in this reality. It's not just when you're out of body. That's the way it is in this reality. We get in data in this reality. We turn it into something meaningful to us in terms of metaphors that mean something to us. Words themselves are metaphors for something else. So we use language. We use images. We use all of that to translate the data we get into something that makes sense to us. Louche is not a, a thing that is should be taken literally. What Bob was doing there was a, or was experiencing there, that louche, um, I don't know, there's a section there in the book covers a couple of pages of, of Bob's experience. That was his metaphor for the data he got, and that was the best pattern match and metaphor that he could fit to it. Bob was a good reporter. He got his, he got his data he interpreted the best he can, and that's exactly the way he reported it. He didn't embellish it. He didn't try to change it later. He was a good reporter. Just what he experienced, that was it. But what he experienced was his interpretation of the data. Now, think of it in a little different terms. Okay, We are consciousness, and what we do is we evolve by becoming love, by caring by growing up, by making good choices. Okay, now, I remember in Bob's book, I believe in that section, he says, well, you started with a lot of animals first, dinosaurs and, you know, whatever else was fish and other things. And, well, that worked some, but it didn't work very well. Well, it's because the choices that those critters had to make weren't as effective in reducing entropy as were the choices that came later made by we naked apes called humans. We made more deeply considered choices that had more ramifications and affected more things and uh, had more, say, moral value, if you will, attached to them because that was the nature of, of our avatar as opposed to, say, a dinosaur avatar or a dolphin avatar or whatever else. Dolphins may be more intelligent than us. They have bigger brains, but they don't have the impact that we have. They don't have the ability to destroy the world three or four different ways. They don't have the ability to save the world three or four different ways. They don't build things uh, like we do that impact millions of other people. They don't use an internet you see they have that makes the world small so that they can talk to dolphins you know on the opposite side of the world we have a much richer decision set in front of us therefore we have the potential to grow up faster 
and and uh, more than do a lot of other creatures. So that's why Bob uh, started with, well, the animals, they, they worked some, but they didn't make a whole lot of louche. Well, that louche is they didn't do a whole lot of growing up. They didn't move a whole lot toward love because their decision space was very, very small. Bob associated it with emotion, but it wasn't emotion. It was feeling. It was empathy. It was connectedness. It was about other. It was consideration. These were the things that made louche, as Bob interpreted it. And this louche wasn't food for somebody else. It wasn't food for, you know, the monsters on the next planet or the next reality system. This was the stuff that made the reality system work, made the reality system evolve. Okay? Our reality system grows, evolves, becomes because we make good choices. We lower our entropy. As we lower our entropy, the entropy of the system lowers. So if you want to make the metaphor that the system is consuming, you know, the entropy that, uh, or the, the consuming what the effects of the lower entropy because of our choices, then you can put that in terms of we're making loose and the system's eating it. Well, that's just a way of looking at it. You see, Bob didn't have the big picture as far as the system entropy um, you know, becoming love is the, is the point, uh, that sort of thing. What he had is a set of experiences that he was very good at telling you what he saw, how he interpreted the data he got. He was good at that, but he did not have that bigger picture. So when he got this image and these, this information that he was getting, what he turned it into was what he knew. He was raised on a farm. He lived on an estate that was a farm. He knew about growing things and harvesting them and, you know, the food chain that the ones on the bottom feed the ones on the top. He had all that in his mind and in his world. And he took his information and he put it in terms of that metaphor. That's the story on Lush. There is no bunch of things that feed off our energy, et cetera, et cetera. That's kind of the negative look at that metaphor. That's not the way it was intended. And uh, I remember when Bob had that concept, I was very regularly coming out to his house and spending time with him. And Dennis was as well and others. And, and I remember when he got that. And that very next day after he got that thing with the loose, he came and and uh, had a chat with me. He says, you know, he, this was something serious, something big that he had just kind of gotten and he wanted to share it with me. And he did. And I can tell you that he didn't have that negative connotation to it. He just had a, this is what I got and here's what I made of it. Now, he didn't use the words, that's the data I got and here's my interpretation because he didn't see it that way. He saw it as this is, you know, the information I got. He didn't realize it was his interpretation of data. So he explained that to me, but it wasn't something that was fearful that the big bad guys are sucking energy out of us and, you know, we're being used as food. That wasn't his point at all. It was just a, wow, this is really interesting. Here's what I got. And he was up about it and he was telling me about it and he didn't have a, um, a big negative or positive thing about it. For Bob, it was 
this is what I got. And that's it. That's as far as it went. He didn't read the, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the non-physical mafia, you know, or, uh, you know, bleeding us for our loose. You know, he didn't go there and, uh, he didn't go to the opposite side, you know, oh, you know, we're, we're offering up manna to heaven. You know, he didn't go there either. He just said, that's what I got. And he explained it to me in a lot of detail. And he was kind of excited about it because it was a big new thing that he had seen. He had felt what he called it a rote, a rote that he had, you know, unraveled or something. And that was that. So there was, Bob didn't have any negative connotation about it at all. So it was just a metaphor. It's a metaphor of the way our system works. And yes, we feed the system. If feed means we help it continue, we help it succeed, we help it uh, not die. Our reduction of entropy helps the system live and go on and make more choices. Because if we make poor choices, then we're raising the entropy. So you might say there, we're feeding it poison when we make uh, poor choices, right? We're killing the system. We're doing it in. Well, that's kind of a bad way to look at that metaphor. You see, it's a much better way is that we make choices. They lower or raise the entropy and the system evolves or de-evolves. Not just us evolving and de-evolve, but the whole system evolves and de-evolves as a cumulative result of all of our choices and all the other choices that all the other consciousness makes as well. We just happen to be on the fast track because we have big decision space compared to most of the other critters on this planet. So our choices are more... Uh, are, are more likely to raise or lower entropy than the choice, say, that a bumblebee has. So that's why we're important. That's what makes us and our minds and our thoughts and our choices important. And we, the system survives because of our choices or de-evolves because of our choices. So he just got something that was telling him about how the how the system worked, how reality worked. And he didn't know how to put that into terms of entropy and choice and the larger system of which we're all apart because he didn't see reality that way because he just interpreted what he got and that was that. He was done with it. He wrote it down in his book and went on to the next thing. That was his job. He was a, you know... Not a prophet so much as a storyteller. He told the, he told stories about what he'd seen in his adventures. So he he wrote it down. Not not wrote R O T E. No no pun intended there. Okay. No. Sorry, sorry, Tom. I just just the way I'm yeah. feeling today. Sorry about that. Okay. Yeah, so anyway, that's that's the honest answer. Now, if you want some other kind of answer, I could probably think one up, but you have to give me some time. But that's uh, that's the honest answer. Well, maybe we should come back to that then. We'll come back and visit that another day. Okay. Um, Tom, the next one is from Tony. It's uh, The question is about, does becoming love eliminate our free will? Um, it's an interesting one. You know, it's uh, if we are bound to become love, then we do acts of love and service to others out of our being and not out of our intellect. So, for example, we help that old lady across the street, not because we think it's the right thing to do, but because it's who we are. So, everything we do... Because it's who we are, we do without free will, surely. Free will is an eminent ingredient for consciousness to exist. So at the end of the process, we're going to be wired for love, 
no thinking process, and no free will. Can you please explain? Sure. You're confusing free will with intellectual choice. You have choice at the being level. You can choose to help that little old lady, or you can choose to pass her by. You have that choice. If you are a more evolved being, then the choice you're more likely to make is to help the little old lady. Or maybe there's, you're a doctor, and you've been called to the hospital, and there's six people that are going to die in the next 15 minutes. If you don't get there, you might let that little old lady find somebody else to help her and just pass her right on by, because that's the choice you make, even though you are a, a very evolved being. So you're still making choices. You're sorting the good that you can do in the world, the, the service that you can be, the help that you can offer, and you are interacting in the best way that you can to optimize that. And sometimes I guess the little old lady will have to find somebody else to help her or take her chances, and sometimes you'll be there to help her depending on everything else that's going on because you're optimizing. So you're making choices at the being level all the time. and all those choices are free will choices. So it's not true that, that your intellect is the only thing that can have free will. An intellect is an intellectual choice. You just only think of choice as an intellectual choice because mostly those are the only kind of choices you ever make because most of us live out of our intellects. I mean, when I say you, I'm not singling you out. I mean, you, you know, all of us, a plural you here. We make choices out of our intellect. And the choices we make out of our being level, we don't even know we're making the choice. When somebody is, you know, is unpleasant to you, somebody says something rude to you, you make a choice of how you react. And it does not come out of your intellectual level. You just react out of your being level. And that's a choice. And that is a free will choice. You have the free will to not act that way. And you're saying, oh, no, I don't, because that's just part of my... What is it? Uh, unconscious. You know, that's that dark secret place of me that uh, just reaches out and grabs me and makes me do things. And it's not my choice at all. Well, that's you trying to escape responsibility for your choices. That is your choice. It's your choice from the being level. It doesn't run through your intellect and you can change that choice. You have the free will to do that. You can grow up so you don't uh, react with anger to an insult. That's growing up, realizing that that anger is not helpful. It hurts. It makes the situation worse. And that insult wasn't about you. It was about them. They're the ones that made it. It's, uh, it's, it's their thing. So growing up has to do with making free will choices. Changing at the being level is free will choices. And all choices are not intellectual choices. We make thousands of choices every day that our intellect has nothing to do with. And most of those choices are the things that count most toward our growth. Our intellectual choices count the least toward our growth. If you only look at intellectual choices, our intellect has a very small influence on whether we evolve or de-evolve. The really important choices that move us ahead or drag us back are the choices we make out of the being level. So that's what's important. So all free will choices aren't intellectual choices. Intellectual choices are another choice we make, and that is also free will. But that's like the tip of the iceberg. The rest of the iceberg is underwater. 
And uh, it's much more of that's underwater than not. One interesting thing is, is that once you get rid of fear, okay, now when you get rid of fear, the beliefs are gone, the ego's gone, and the fear's gone. Guess what? You don't have an unconscious mind anymore. You don't have this subconscious going on that pushes and pulls you and makes you get angry and all the other stuff. All of that now becomes part of your operative awareness. There's nothing down there. All of the stuff, even including your basic drives and hunger and sex and all of that, it doesn't push you around. You're aware of all of it. So the subconscious is really a, what do, what do we call it? Um, there's a medical name for it. Uh, it's, a, it's a condition that's really not healthy as far as looking at a, a, a fully evolved consciousness. It's a, it's a disease condition, if you will. That's not really what I was looking for, but it's a, it's a result. Uh, a, um, yeah, it's a result of fear. The fear's gone. You're open. You're just all being level. Your being level and your intellect merge into one thing. There is no ego, which is awareness in the service of fear. You only have awareness in the service of love. The intellect, the being level, you are all one whole thing. There's no conscious and subconscious. It's just an awareness that's whole, undivided, right brain, left brain. It's all one integrated whole, all aware of all of it. So that's really where you're going as you get rid of your fear. You also will get rid of your subconscious. You'll get rid of those unawareness of your instincts. You'll know that you like any other animal on this planet, have instincts. And if those instincts push and pull you around and make you feel different ways more than you ever thought possible, they're not a, a minor player. Oh, all the other lower animals have instincts that push them around. But we humans, we only have little tiny little instincts like a maternal instinct or, you know, that sort of thing. And they're very small things. But no, we have all of us, male and female, are, you know, up to here with instincts. They push us around a lot. We just don't know it. We justify all that stuff with our intellect and our ego and our beliefs. But all of that becomes just a known part of you when you grow up. 